So nice to meet you, Tim. Um, so you have a master's degree in epidemiology, and you studied you studied disease, diseases in the past like SARS and Asian influenza. So I wanted to know how does COVID nineteen compare to, to diseases of the past, and why is it specifically this one that is having such a large effect on the world? Well, this particular disease is uh, the the worst pandemic we could say that we've seen in more than a century. Uh, the fifty seven, the sixty eight, the two thousand nine were pandemics, but they were never anywhere near as uh, as widespread as the current one. Um, it's uh, a new disease. All those other ones I mentioned, including the nineteen eighteen. Uh, were all influenza viruses. This is clearly not an influenza virus. It's a coronavirus, uh, similar to SARS, it related to SARS, and also related to four other coronaviruses that we uh, experience endemically in, in seasonal colds every year. Uh, they're quite distant relatives to the current one. But what we've got here is something that uh, can spread. Its R0 value is high enough to cause some concern. That's the uh, measure of the, how rapidly it spreads to a community in its initial form. Uh, and also its case fatality rate is approximately 10 times what seasonal flu is. So you can imagine that uh, anything like that is going to cause some concern. And do you think that uh, just these days in general, because of the fact that international travel is so widespread that uh, we're more susceptible to diseases overall? We're completely susceptible to it because nobody has any protection against it. There is some idea that uh, we may have some residual immunity from uh, recent exposure to the common cold from those other coronaviruses I mentioned. That's still a, a subject of a great study at the moment, uh, not due to antibodies, but rather due to what we call cellular, Im cellular immunity. In other words, the T cells might have a, a, a much longer lasting memory of having, having been exposed to uh, any form of coronavirus, and that might actually protect us a little bit, we, but that's not been measured fully yet. Uh, certainly, the, uh, the initial, um, initial contact, if you like, of any country with this particular virus came through people either returning back home or visitors to the country from a place where the virus was already being spread around. So sure, uh, crossing borders is a major concern. Once it's in the country, normally epidemiology uh, uh, functions in, in, a, in a duality that we call containment and surveillance, or put it the right way around, surveillance and containment. Surveillance here simply means gathering information, uh, and normally that will control it. In this, in this particular instance, we found pretty soon that the surveillance and containment wasn't doing a good job. And the reason is because we know that anywhere between 30% and 70% of people who have the virus don't have any signs or symptoms of it uh, at the time they're being tested. Some never, in fact, develop signs or symptoms because they can spread the virus, but without even knowing in some cases that they have it. So it's difficult to contain it. 
because the surveillance is not picking up all of the positives. So that's why we moved in about April or May into what we call a mitigation stance, which is where we're saying, look, it's moving around the community. We can't contain it and keep it isolated. All we can do is advise people to, to be aware that it's moving around the community and to uh, act accordingly, and hence protect yourself so, and protect others by so doing. In other words, the distancing, uh, the mask wearing, the hand hygiene particularly. And why do you think that there was this delay between um, sort of the beginning of January from when this virus was identified to the middle of March when um, sort of everything started to close down and actions were being made to stop the spread? That's a quite common uh, fault, if we can call it that, uh, among many countries. I'm disappointed with uh, the way that Canada has reacted in the sense, if you look over the border to the south, to see what the, the, the raging dumpster fire that's going on south of the border, we, anything looks better than that. But by comparison with other countries, we haven't done as good a job as we should have done, especially especially considering that Canada, particularly Ontario, and very specifically Toronto, was um, involved in SARS-1 in 2003, another coronavirus. It never became pandemic. It was really a series of regional outbreaks in about uh, six or eight centers around the world. But those other countries that were affected with SARS-1 learned from that, ex uh, that experience in a way that they were very much better prepared for this eventuality 16 years later, uh, except for Toronto. We seem to be making this exactly the same mistakes as we made back in 2003. And if you were to dig up a copy of the report written in 2006 by uh, um, Mr. Justice Archie Campbell, the judge who wrote the report, uh, his criticisms were quite uh, clear and quite uh, succinct and uh, succ uh, mainly covering criticisms such as not being prepared, not being aware that this could descend upon uh, Canada at any time, and, uh, and in fact decisions used, decisions made during the reaction to it that were too hesitant, too reluctant, too delayed. Uh, for example, I, I lived for a while in uh, Taiwan and also uh, been to Hong Kong dozens of times since 1989. And in both those countries, they dealt with it very well indeed. Taiwan is only about 160 kilometers from the Chinese border, but in total, they've had less than 500 cases, and almost all of those have come from people outside the country. And they've had, I think, seven deaths from the very beginning. They've never had an outbreak there. And the reason they did that was because they learned from SARS and they had their listening posts set up. They listened to CBC, uh, BBC, uh, NHK from Japan, BBC, of course, and the, uh, CNN and the Chinese broadcasters all the time, 24 hours a day. They have listening going on. And they were well aware that something was happening there long before most other people did. So they were able to bring in border controls temperature controls for people coming off planes and, uh, and ships and so on, uh, severe quarantine, um, uh, very, very uh, strict 
isol um, surveillance. In other words, they take over your cell phone, your, your passport control, electronics, and so on. They know exactly where you are. And uh, so you're able to go freely around. People went back to school that never even left school. People went back to work. You can go shopping. Nothing was closed down. Your temperatures would be taken in the streets uh, quite often by people several times a day. Children wore masks, but they never had an outbreak there. And this is because they did it the right way. South Korea did it very well indeed, other than a couple of uh, super spreader events that was really due to one or two people only got out of control. But they rapidly squashed that down again. Uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, again, they had a few little flare-ups, but they squashed that down. They were doing the right thing. They weren't fiddling around with concerns about privacy and, uh, and uh, you know, how people will find out what we're doing. To hell with that. This is a dangerous disease. It's killing millions of people. This isn't the time to worry about uh, uh, having your phone under surveillance. We want to know who you've been contacting with. This is having not done that. This is why we see it now being spread around. Mm -hmm. And um, speaking about how Canada has dealt with this virus, do you think in hindsight it might have been a mistake to ease lockdowns and reopen schools? The initial decision to open schools, I think, was a careful one. And so far, it's shown probably that it was, I think, the right idea, even though it's not an easy, uh, it's not an easy uh, response that the schools have had to try and adapt to that. But it, it, it is causing a lot of problems to keep the kids out of school, um, a lot of time lost there. But I think uh, so far we've seen that, that there's not a great deal of transmission that's been going on directly traced back to the schools. Remember that the schools are an indication of what's going on in the community. So if a family is, is keeping to its bubble, it's keeping to its local contacts, uh, that its child will be going to school. And if something happens, well, the family does get infected, or the, the child may well be tested positive, but it's not a school transmission. That's the thing we're worried about, is that when we see six or eight cases suddenly appearing one Monday morning from school kids, <clears throat> and they're all are a cluster of kids in the school. In other words, it's moving around the school. And we haven't really seen that very much at all uh, up until a few days ago. I think there's a couple of being looked at right now. But in general, it's not such a bad uh, scenario, the schools. But we've got to keep an eye on that. But but because that's so important, this is why we, we need to be really concerned about how much or how rapidly it's moving around the community. And this is why a half, uh, half-assed measure, if you like, where we're not really uh, clamping down on this in a proper way, we're more concerned about people be in people's businesses going under and so on. This is a terrible thing. I mean, we sh really have to protect people, put their life savings in, and everything else into their business, and they see it suddenly going down. This may not survive. We need to protect these people in as much way as possible. But that's not a reason to allow this thing to move more rapidly through the community. If it begins to take off exponentially, as it's showing signs of doing, if we, if we take the foot off the brake, uh, it'll be a lot more severe on the entire society than seeing a, a, a number of precious businesses going down the drain. It, everybody will suffer then, not just the businesses. And do you think that there is sort of a, a middle ground that can be made between sort of keeping the economy alive as well as keeping people alive? 
or do you think it just it should be skewed towards um like like everything being closed down and locked off in the very beginning the uh the first sectors that were involved uh it started off in the west coast actually seattle and vancouver and so on and then moved to the rest of the country the first sectors were the uh, long-term care homes old age uh, people retirement homes and so on nursing homes and that's where it spread through and caused a huge amount of uh, death among those people and then within about a month or two it just started to go into the manufacturing area meat packing plants and so it was right to begin to concentrate on these areas but at the same time we didn't have a good idea of how well it was spreading or how how far it would spread and so we we brought in this rather heavy-handed full lockdown and it did work. I mean, it did bring the cases down, and it will do again. Ma Melbourne did this. As an example of the other argument here is to say Melbourne did it. It, it had a second wave, which was due almost entirely to uh, bad control on, with people under quarantine. People didn't keep under quarantine, and it escaped and got out again. A very big wave, and they brought that right back down to zero again. Uh, New Zealand was on the button. They never had a second wave. They never even had a first wave, much to speak of. And so it can be done, and it may have to be done here again. And I think we, we, the more we look at this day by day, if you look at the figures, that may be the solution. You see, the virus doesn't hang around. It doesn't sort of lurk for a few days until somebody walks past you and then ambushes you. It's, in the, it's not like a fruit fly. It, it's got to be directly transmitted from person to person within seconds or minutes or maybe an hour in a closed room or a bar or something like that. So if we can stop the transmission person to person, if we can stop that for, um, say, two incubation periods, one incubation period to let the virus work itself out and whoever's positive now to, be, to either die or to recover, and then a second incubation period, just to make sure it's not around there. Two incubation periods maximum would be about 28 days, four weeks. In theory, if we could actually stop all means of transmission for four weeks, that's really, you know, staying in your basement uh, with your toilet paper and your baked beans and your bread machine and not going outside, essentially. I mean, because it never really works like that because you still need people to to drive ambulances and you still need people to look after patients in hospital and so on, essential services. So it can never be 100%. But if we were able to do that, the pandemic would go away. It would just go away, disappear. Uh, there would be the odd sporadic case pop up here and there, but they could, they could be cons contained. Uh, we'd then be looking at people bringing it in, like truck drivers and so on, bringing in food. We'd have to watch out for that. But if you could contain it like that, it would work. It would disappear. And it may be the way to do it. So far, the, this seems to be a wave response. In other words, it's much like a car without an engine going on with a brake only. It's rolling down a hill. So you stand on the brake really tough and you can bring the car to a halt. But the moment you relax your foot again, it starts to roll down the hill. This wave approach of rolling and stopping, rolling and stopping, might have to continue until vaccines are available for everybody. That may well be the future, much as people don't like it. But from a point of view of businesses, say restaurants, at least they would probably be uh, more accepting of the fact that they know they can run for a couple of weeks or, th or three weeks, whatever it is, and then they have to s stop again for two more weeks if that's the, if that's the, 
if that's the uh, frequency of this kind of stop-go function. At least they could, they could plan for that. But I, I hear them saying, you know, they get up and running and they get stored up with food and they start and then suddenly says, you've got to close again. And all that stock of food has to be either thrown in the garbage or given away or something. They've lost both ways and th that lack of planning is a problem. Should there be any, like, uh, any fear or concern over this virus possibly mutating into a form that is novel and also dangerous or more dangerous than it currently is? With all viruses, uh, <clears throat> mutation is a concern. Um, DNA viruses don't mutate very much at all. This is why we can have a lifelong uh, immunization against many of these things. Uh, the RNA viruses tend to, uh, rep uh, tend to mutate a little more rapidly. But the, the model we've been afraid of all of these years, which is a really serious influenza, not talking about even the ordinary pandemics of influenza, we're talking about uh, unimaginable serious ones like H5N1 or H7N9. <clears throat> influenza viruses mutate almost while you're looking at them, which means that any vaccine you bring out, by the time it's ready to put into your arm, is probably 30 to 50 percent useless because it's the virus is mutated. But the coronavirus seems to mutate very slowly. Now the small mutations we do see enable virologists to plot where the virus moved from one species to another and approximately when that happened. But those tiny, tiny changes are not affecting a, vi a vaccine. We have seen recently um, uh, in the last, I guess, two weeks is reported, but it's been known for about a couple of months, um, the uh, transmission of the virus into another animal species. Remember, this is an animal virus to begin with, so the fact that it goes into other animals is not a surprise at all. But the, uh, but the mutation that took place when it went into the mink in Western uh, Europe and then bounced back out into humans again, that seems to have undergone a, a, a form of mutation. It's not fully understood yet. We don't have all the information from the uh, Danish people yet. But it seems that it may, be, uh, may have affected the response to antibodies. So in other words, it may not be as effective in responding to antibodies. And that, that's a little bit of an arm's length argument against vaccines, but it, it, it's possible it could affect the vaccine efficiency. So it's, no, it's not the case cause for panic or anything. This isn't suddenly a new uh, potent strain that's spreading around the world. I mean, this is not, that's not happening at all. It's identified, there's some people have been identified, small number. Uh, but anything that interferes with the vaccine efficiency would, uh, would be of concern. We need to know more about it, and uh, we don't know enough about it yet. And, and with regards to the changing seasons, how do, you, do you think the winter and sort of people having to stay indoors, is that going to have an effect on the spread? We've got uh, four main reasons why we can expect an increase in the wintertime. Uh, we've seen two already. The first one is simply um, uh, really more, more people coming indoors, if you like. They're, uh, they're, they're coming out of the patios and the parks and they're moving into bars and restaurants and basements and so on. <clears throat> That's beginning to happen already. 
before that, we began to see the first one, really, I guess, of the four, which is uh, a, a slackening off of care and attention and letting a guard down. So we, we said, oh, it, the numbers are going down. This is back in August when the numbers were quite low. Uh, therefore, we don't have to worry about this masking stuff. The pandemic's almost done. We can go back to normal. And that all happened far too soon. And that was a big, big mistake because that's what, that's what caused the beginning of this increase. So following that, then we get the people coming in out, from outside to inside because the temperature outside is colder. The third one is that the temperature inside the house though, is also cooler than it was in the summer. And the air you breathe out, the plume that you breathe out, full of droplets of every size from uh, one or two microns up to 100 microns in size. Remember, nobody breathes out naked viruses. Nobody. We all breathe out viruses inside droplets of water of different sizes. So that plume with gases and vapors and bits of mucus and, so, and air and so on, as we breathe it out at 37 degrees C, the surrounding air, if it's much cooler, means that your breath now rises up as a plume right by convection and can be expected to spread around the room further before it begins to cool. And so it's potentially able to spread to more people in a closed space. And the last point is the humidity. As the furnaces come on, the humidity in the house begins to drop. And in a dry air situation, remember those little droplets we talked about? Well, they, the moisture in those droplets now begins to evaporate within seconds in dry air. So we can begin to see what we call uh, droplet nuclei, which is the, the core of the droplet after the moisture's gone, the bit that contains the bits of protein and the bits of sugar and bits of virus. They can spread further now. If you've ever had the sunlight coming in a window and you, you puff up a couch or a cushion or something, you see little bits of dust floating in the sunlight. And they don't fall down from gravity, they float. Imagine that to be the model of the virus. You see, we see the virus floating around. So we've got four reasons why we can expect during the winter time um, this thing not to go away. It's going to increase. So that first one was a problem. We let it let our guard down, begin to increase, and then the other three will take on and make sure it gets worse before it gets better. So is it safe to say that there isn't really like an an end date in sight as of right now? Well, there could be a forced ending. It would be unpleasant, but we could uh, bring in another severe lockdown. Um, and, and that means getting people to cooperate. I mean, people are fatigued. They've been hearing this now for seven or eight months, and they're tired of it. Unfortunately, there's no shortcut here. We're in the middle of a pandemic that's already... And remember, the, the recorded cases, the official case count, is far, far lower than the actual infections. We've known that for a long time, between three and eight times uh, uh, higher uh, the actual infections going around than we actually see reported. So it's going to get worse before it gets better. The severe lockdown will bring it down. That's what they did in China. They had 82,000 cases in one small area, a small area, but city of Wuhan, and they brought that down to essentially zero. Uh, new cases, a handful, if that, in a day, so many days, zero new cases completely. So you, can, you can do it. It's painful, uh, but you can do it. So uh, is that a cause for optimism or pessimism? I don't know. Until the vaccines get here, we need to bring in some pretty severe actions. If we are too relaxed, if we're too relaxed on this thing, this thing will get out of control again. 
And there's been a group of people, um, misguided people, some of them are scientists as well, uh, who have suggested that theoretically we could just let the virus run free and uh, try and achieve uh, what they mistakenly understand to be herd immunity as a policy. This is not a policy. It's a natural end to any pandemic, the herd immunity. It simply means you have enough people in the society who have antibodies or some other form of immunity which will prevent the virus from infecting them and the virus just keeps encountering people who are immune. So it disappears. That, that's the natural end and you achieve that either by letting the society become infective as we do with a common cold or we did years ago before any vaccines came along, huge death rate, or we uh, bring in vaccines. And so hopefully in most modern situations, it's a combination of natural infection and then the vaccine comes in and accelerates that immunity until we all reach about 55 to 61%, roughly is where we estimate the proportion of the society who need to be immune through either natural infection or a vaccine before the thing will begin to slow down and stop. Actually, it'll begin to slow down a bit before then. So, so far in Canada, we have about 96% of people at least who are completely unprotected without any immunity at all, completely susceptible to the virus, 96%. The United States, it's probably about 91%, 90%, something like that. So the vast majority have no protection at all. And if we let a foot off the brake, or if we, if we are careless, uh, we, we could see a massive outbreak. And that means that hospitals would simply collapse under the strain. And meanwhile, all this is going on. People are still having heart attacks. And they're still having cancer treatments that they need. And you're still having broken bones. You still need to go to the hospital for all these things, strokes and what have you. And if they're absolutely loaded up and they've got COVID patients in the hallways they're trying to treat, they're just going to say, we give up. We can't see any more patients. So the death rate from other reasons is going to go up and up and up. This is just a runaway, like a, a snowball effect. It'll be a disaster. Now, speaking of vaccines, Pfizer recently announced that their vaccine is over 90% effective. And there are, there are a couple more in phase three that should have their results soon. If, if we can get a vaccine that's that effective out soon, out relatively soon, what will that mean for the fight against COVID? Well, that's a, a simple question, but uh, it's a very complicated uh, procedure to get that uh, having any effect. Um, to begin with, we, I have the full protocol of this uh, FITSA study. It's about 38 pages long. Uh, very, very detailed procedure, and it, they've done all the right stuff. The 90% comes from, um, if you can imagine, tens of thousands of people, at least about 47,000 um, people split into two groups. Each group is given either uh, a vaccine that's under trial or a placebo. Nobody knows what it is. Either the patients don't know, the people giving the vaccines or placebo don't know, and the people running the tests afterwards don't know. And then you wait for a period of time, and it turned out that something like uh, um, uh, 94 people I believe that's the right figure. I don't have the figures in front of me. About 94 people developed uh, COVID uh, uh, infection. 
And of those, if, if, if you would normally expect, if the vaccine was no good, that those 94 people would be split, roughly, you know, 44 either side, either on the placebo group or vaccine group. But in this case, 90% uh, of those um, COVID positive people were on the no vaccine side. So you had something like, uh, I don't know, about 80, 89 on one side and maybe four or five on the other side. And that's where the 90% comes in. If that's uh, true, and that's verified, because it's got to be verified and peer-reviewed by uh, various committees and uh, independent bodies to make sure all the data are there. But if that kind of result comes in, that's very good news indeed. That's very impressive. I mean, it would be impressive even if you could uh, have a, 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 a slight improvement in your risk of not developing the disease, you know, say 60% or 65 or 70%, that would still be good. Anything more than 50% would be good. Uh, but to have that amount it would be uh, is quite remarkable. Let's hope it works. Now, in terms of operationalizing this, uh, the fact that at this point in November now, we have this kind of result and probably other results coming along soon. We have to consider a couple of things. One is how long does the immunity last from a vaccine? And we have a lot of mixed studies in that one. Um, some studies have shown that the half-life, right, the half of the antibody that is induced by a vaccine, uh, sorry, induced by an infection, not a vaccine, by an infection, the half-life is achieved in about uh, three to five weeks, which is not good news. In other words, if you are infected and you recover, you've only got half the antibodies left by about uh, a month later. So we would like to see it up to a, a, a year or so. Um, uh, and all the antibody uh, protection appears to have gone by about five to seven weeks. However, that's the antibody response. And um, whether it's an immunity, whether it's an infection or, an, or a vaccine, you also got another kind of uh, uh, immunity. It's called uh, cellular immunity. This is the T cells. And that seems to have a much better memory against the disease. And that seems to last longer. And it uh, may well be that uh, the best results from either an infection or in preferably uh, a vaccine will be through T-cell memory. And that could last longer. It, it may. In the best of all worlds, we will see this included as an add-on to your yearly flu shot. So you'll go along for your flu shot, there'll be three antigens from influenza, and then they'll add in the COVID antigen as well. So just a yearly update, and that, that's the best situation. We're not quite at that point in saying that's what the situation will be, but it's quite within the realms of possibility, knowing what we know about the vaccine, so that could well be. And also the other factor is that this information about the poor... Uh, longevity of the antibody response is built on not vaccines, it's built on actual infections. And we know that we can engineer vaccines to give you a much more robust, a much more powerful shot of, uh, of what would be equivalent to the virus in a vaccine than you would have just by having a, a mild infection and having recovered. So we can engineer vaccines to be to give you a more powerful wallop of protection, and so that also may help to uh, give a much longer-lasting immunity. Um, what should be the message to people who are concerned because of the fact that um, 
if this Pfizer vaccine gets approved, it's the first mRNA vaccine, like in terms of cause of concern. Well, of course, that's why fa- all, the f- all the three phases, the first phase is just to see whether it does any kind of response at all. There's a small number, a few dozen people, if you like, less than 100. The second phase is looking to see uh, on a, if there's any obvious side effects, like people reacting to it or, or immune, immune responses or something like that. And then you move into phase three, which is tens of thousands of people. And uh, the outcomes there are going to be looking at antibody response and other forms of immunity response. But also you're looking at uh, that number of people, if there are going to be side effects or, or sequelae, you know, things that complications that happen, you'll find it in that number of people. This is why a couple of studies already have put the brakes on a little bit because there's been a couple of people ill. And of course, when you're looking at, say, a, a group of 30,000 people, you're going to have people who are going to suffer from various reactions regardless of whether they had the vaccine or not. That's a normal thing. So, But nevertheless, the, the studies are halted for a while until they check it out and make sure uh, there was no connection with the vaccine, and then they, they continue on. So the safety is a major concern here, and this is why the the various independent bodies that have to review the results of uh, phase three trials uh, have a great task to do. Uh, All countries have got this, and there's an international body with the WHO set up as well to look at this. So the last thing we want is to see uh, a vaccine brought out that actually causes problems as well as solving problems. We don't want to see that. So uh, you can be sure that there's a lot of safety uh, focus going on with this particular thing here. So, so far, there's been uh, no apparent uh, evidence of any uh, horrible effects here at all. I mean, for example, if you look at smallpox vaccine, when that was brought in, at least it's it's an unusual one because it was brought in in the 1700s and it was... um, Actually, Is that the vaccine it, that leaves a scar on your arm? That's right. I have one. Yeah, I'm, I've been vaccinated with that. Uh, but that actually was a, a different process. That's where you act vaccinated using a different disease, a mild disease, to give you protection against the more severe disease. But even that one, actually, even today, uh, the vaccine is still available. Should there be an outbreak, it's unlikely, but there should there be. That is a more dangerous vaccine. That's why we wouldn't give it to everybody just to just to be on the safe side. Could, it's got to be the vac. The smallpox would have to be marching down your street, in order to give the decision to vaccinate because it's a dangerous vaccine. There's a little more. But this particular thing here, so far, we haven't seen any uh, negative uh, aspects at all, which is very good news. And what do you think that the tier list should be in terms of who gets the vaccine first between like? Well, that's the concern that uh, it's a really big concern, of course. Um, Uh, And from a public health point of view, we really need to say this shouldn't be done on party political lines. It shouldn't be done on who's got the more money to pay for it. Uh, The U.S. might be going that direction. I hope not. Uh, In in all public health uh, sort of conscience, it should be where it can be of most use to the society. So people who are most at risk of contracting it, that would be health care workers, hospital workers, respiratory technologists, people working in old, old folks' homes, people like that, who are daily coming into contact and sometimes not with sufficient protection uh, with people who have the illness right now and are shedding the virus. So they've clearly got to be in the front end of that. And the people in old folks' homes, because they are dealing with such a vulnerable population, it can spread like wildfire through an old folks' home. 
But then beyond that lot, then we've got people who deal with the public generally. We've also got people who are, uh, have underlying um, comorbidities. In other words, they're beyond about 65 or 70. They are obese, perhaps. They've got diabetes. They have uh, a chronic obstructive lung disease. They have uh, a chronic kidney disease, uh, uh, cardiovascular diseases, all of the high blood pressure, all of those kinds of things. They're at much higher risk. And the risk from that group of dying, if you are infected, can be over 15%, 18%, even 20% chance of dying, one in five. So clearly it would be good to, to try and uh, get those people protected. Uh, and then you've got all the other people who have a, a public interface. Uh, I mean, what about the you know, taxi drivers and school teachers and people like that or, or anybody in the clerical area? So we need to test these people as well. And this is the other big failing we've seen in Ontario is that we've been reluctant to, to uh, extensively and strategically use testing procedures. We've been behind the game all the way through. I don't play hockey, but some of my uh, hockey playing friends uh, uh, have got this analogy they use to say you always skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it was when you last saw it. And Ontario, uh, the response has been always to been behind, been delaying, been reluctant to, to be proactive. In other words, the idea of just letting people wandering in if you want a test uh, is not really strategic. Uh, more recently, uh, the, to restrict testing to people who have one of the symptoms on the list uh, is, is going in the opposite direction. If you have enough symptoms on the list, we almost can guarantee that you've got COVID-19 without having to be tested. What we're more concerned with is where the transmission's taking place silently, moving through the community with your brother-in-law and your friend and your family and your neighbor without them even knowing they've become infected. Those are the people we need to be testing strategically. And so even rapid testing has been sort of so reluctant. We now hear, at I hear there's a couple of truckloads of, of rapid tests on their way from somewhere to somewhere else. These sh things should have been used back in April or May. The reason they're not being used is essentially, from a government's point of view, is that they're only maybe 89 or 90% sensitive. They're only gonna, we're gonna miss 10% of the positive virus if we use the rapid tests. The point is that if, you, if they're cheap and easy to do, you can give two of these tests a few days apart and two 90% and 90% again will give you 99% on the same person, right? It's, it's like a grid that you put one grid in front of another. Now you've got about 99%, which is roughly the same as the PCR tests that are being used at the moment. So anybody in a situation come into contact with the public, such as taxi drivers or airline uh, attendants or, or uh, teachers perhaps, or anybody working in that sort of kind of a setting, certainly hospital, healthcare workers, ambulance drivers, should be tested at least once a week as a condition of their employment. Uh, what's not to like about that? I mean, that's, that would was, that was rapidly find out where the virus is, and you can isolate those people before they even know they've got the virus and stop further spread. This is, this is intelligent use of testing. But so far, we, we, we... And now, in fact, just to add on to that one, we mentioned we don't have much faith in the confirmed case count. 
what we've been using uh, other than that is the thing called the positivity rate, which is the percentage of tests that come back positive. So it doesn't matter whether you took a hundred, a thousand, or a million, it's the percentage that come back positive it gives us a much better idea of how rapidly it's moving through the community. So more recently, the Ontario government said, from now on, only show up for the, for the, uh, for the testing if you have got symptoms. They can see what that's going to do. In other words, if you show up for testing, that means you've got the symptoms or you've been in direct contact with somebody, which means that there's a much greater chance of those limited number of people showing positive than if you just invited anybody to show up. So we know the positivity rate has gone up enormously, frighteningly. Back in August, it was 0 0.6, 0 0.7%, 0.8%, less than 1%. And we were saying, good, let's keep it down here. Um, Ontario, over as a whole, I think is about 2.9 percent. The, the uh, most most of this region, the uh, the Toronto region, is about 4.5 percent, and some small areas of the Toronto area, Brampton, for example, that area, is somewhere around 9.9 percent. This is this is unbelievably out of control in these areas, and meanwhile we can't tell how much of this increase in the positivity rate is due to the virus actually moving around the community, which would be really alarming, and how much is due to the fact that we've now restricted the testing to people who are more likely to be positive than before. We can't tell. So another source of information has disappeared. Not only are we not doing enough testing and the tests we use aren't sufficient and, and more extensive, even the people we're testing are, is throwing our data off. Do you think that deaths might be a better indicator of, of uh, the virus because of the fact that we've under-tested and that test the cases and positivity rate may not be as indicative? Yes, deaths are a much better indication. They have been from the very beginning. We've known uh, in other diseases, we, we have an expression called the case fatality rate, the CFR. That's the risk of dying if you are a case. But in this particular disease, we've changed that to an IFR, an infection fatality rate. In other words, what's the risk of dying if you are infected? And because we don't know at least half of the people who are positive, who have been infected, um, this number has been missed by most of the media and most of the people who want to say something about it. We know it's to be somewhere between 0.6% and 1.1%, somewhere in that area. And no average comes out to be 0.7 to 0.9%. So, in that sense, if we take the number of deaths in the, in the community that have been attributed to this disease and divide that by, say, 0 0.008, let's take the middle one, that's, that's 0.8%. You divide by 0 0.008, you now get a much better estimate of how many people have been infected. Now, that's, that, that's about uh, five to six weeks ago. If you have a death today, the infection for that took place five to six weeks ago. So at least if you count up the deaths, multiply, di uh, sorry, divide that by 0 0.008 or 0 0.009, uh, you'll get an idea of how many infections there were about five weeks ago. And that's a much better idea. And you'll see if you compare that with the number of reported cases, you'll see that there's, uh, you're missing. You're only getting about a third to, a, uh, to an eighth of the actual cases. Canada's a little bit better. And th th we've seen that the case fatality rate or the infection fatality rate in Canada might actually have gone down a bit more recently and we think that that's probably because in the beginning we were uh, seeing more old people infected 
and old people have a much higher infection fatality rate. And now the median age has dropped by 15 or 18 years. So we're now seeing people two-thirds less than 40, one-third of infections less than 30 uh, age. So these people are not dying off. So yes, we're seeing less deaths, but we are seeing hospitalizations rise. And this is what's worrying uh, intensive care units and hospitals. We don't want to see that rising up. We've already got a couple of hospitals in the province who have got people in the corridor, you know, and they, you run out of ventilators. And uh, uh, when that happens, that's a real problem. We want to see that stopped. I've, I've, I've heard of people getting their uh, cancer surgeries getting pushed back because of uh, sort of the of course. occupancy rate. This is what we mentioned before. Yeah, we're going to see other other morbidities, other deaths as well, due to other reasons. For example, another reason, even more distant, is that people are reluctant to bring their kids along to have them uh, routinely vaccinated. So the, so the uh, uptake of regular childhood vaccinations has gone down since the summer. That means that we could see in future years an increase in deaths from measles and mumps and all of those other diseases we like to see people protected from. Uh, Andrew Wakefield and his bunch of uh, criminals started that process going several years ago when they got people afraid of the vaccine. It was all completely fraudulent and for their own uh, business profit. Uh, but uh, that message, once it's out there, once the media has let the message go, it's not their fault, but you can't pull it back. It's like the ripples on the pond, you know, you can't pull them back. And so this is why immunization rates went down. This is going to increase the uh, drop in immunization rates, which will increase the deaths from these diseases in the future. It's all, it's a big, uh, you know, domino effect. I've heard the theory that um, eventually, like this, the virus won't, be completely eradicated and that eventually it will become a part of our seasonal flu. Is there any validity to that? No, there's a lot of misunderstanding there. The, 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 the vi- you see the virus or the vaccine? The virus. The virus. Now, the virus won't become part of seasonal flu. What I think you mean is that the virus may become endemic in as much as it won't completely go away, but there'll be odd cases, sporadic cases that pop up from time to time and maybe cause little infections among people who haven't been vaccinated. Yeah, that endemicity or becoming endemic is is quite likely. SARS-1 didn't do that. SARS-1 simply disappeared. It was stamped out enough and it it didn't have such a good uh, rate of uh, transmission person to person. So it disappeared. It hasn't come back. It's, It's clearly still there in the wild community among bats, but it hasn't jumped into humans. This one is so extensive now among the human population that it's, it will um, almost certainly remain. It's not going to disappear. You can't really stamp out a virus like this. And we know that other coronaviruses do adapt to humans. We've got four other coronaviruses which constitute about 15% of common colds in a normal year are caused by these other four. They're very mild, of course, but they, they, they are there. They're endemic. So this virus might become endemic as well. Many of the influenza viruses, which are totally different to coronavirus, the influenza viruses also become endemic. For example, the 2009 H1N1 influenza virus is now uh, a regular seasonal visitor. And it's one of the antigens that you have in your flu shot. It's the same virus that we had in 2009. Uh, And the, the virus also in the flu shot last year and this year has been the H3, sorry, H2N3, 
which was the uh, 1968 pandemic virus. So many of these pandemic viruses do become endemic after a while, and that's quite likely what will happen with this one. But eventually, we're going to, we have to see more people vaccinated, and that's not going to happen for... I don't think it's going to happen in a widespread way until, say, the second quarter next year, and to begin to see the majority of people vaccinated, we, we're going to have to see the end of the year, really, third quarter, maybe fourth quarter, really. And other countries, that may even be further on. <clears throat> well, New Zealand has a head start on us, but um, I wanted to ask you a final question about um, when when this pand- when this pandemic is finally over, do you think that it should be viewed as something that was a by chance once in a century type disease? Or do you think it's something that we should be continued to be worried about if we get something that, you know, is way more deadly than this? Oh, we should be uh, constantly aware that this can happen. It has happened and will probably happen more frequently. There's no question. The uh, Eco Health Alliance uh, uh, International Group have been doing research on this for a long time. <clears throat> they were working very closely with labs around the world, including the uh, the famous uh, uh, bat coronavirus lab at uh, Wuhan as well. <clears throat> that lab was situated there because that's in the middle of um, uh, an area of bat viruses that is not duplicated anywhere else in the world. There could be other v- diseases. For example, e- Ebola is, an, is a zoonosis. It's an animal disease that jumped into humans. Ebola, first time in 1976. And it's been revisiting us in a disastrous way ever since. Uh, HIV is another disease that came from animals. It was a simian immune deficiency virus, came from chimpanzees uh, back, we think, many decades ago. Uh, Almost all the diseases that cause a great deal of concern with us uh, have been zoonoses, uh, animal diseases that jump into humans. The plague, of course, uh, always was a zoonotic disease. And when it jumps into humans, it becomes a uh, a human plague, but it, it, it exists there around the world all the time as animal disease. So yes, we need to be more concerned with this. As the humans butt up against uh, animal populations more and more, um, we begin to see communities built out in, for example, the Arizona or New Mexico desert, new communities set up there. Well, that's where the, that's where the uh, plague bacillus is among the uh, ground squirrels and gophers and so on. And the more we see a contact with that, we're going to see it spreading around. And then, of course, the middle of our large cities have deteriorated, not in Canada as much, but if you go and look at some of the places, like San Francisco, for example, this, the downtown core of some of these cities have deteriorated to such an extent that you're seeing basically no public health services there. You're seeing people living as third world people, living with no facilities, no garbage pickup, uh, uh, very poor sewage uh, collection facilities. It's an ideal, an ideal culture facility for something like the plague to get into that lot. And uh, people aren't going to be trusting of their medical facilities. They don't have insurance. They're not going to go to their doctor. So you can see something like the plague would get into that and starts moving around in a very advanced way before anybody starts to pull an alarm. But by that time, you've got the middle of a city infected with something like the plague. They'll bring it under control again. But it, this, these kinds of things can happen. Look at the Ebola. It was only a small outbreak here, a small outbreak there. And then suddenly we had an outbreak in Liberia and two other countries in West Africa. And it got way out of control. It was up into the 
tens of thousands of cases uh, in no time at all. And uh, yes, it, it will happen again, no question about it.